is an Odyssey original. This is KDX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Will the Hollywood actor strike impact the summer box office? No actors to promote the movies. What will studios do? We'll go in-depth. Another new drug shows a lot of promise in slowing down the Alzheimer's disease. And there's one person who might be able to save your city's economy. We'll tell you who it is. It's not me. Nope. Most definitely. Definitely not me. Nope. Who's left? You'll be surprised. We start with uh, we start with the Hollywood strikes and the potential impact on summer films. Back with us is Jason Squire, Professor Emeritus at the USC School of Cinematic Arts and host of the Movie Business Podcast on Spotify. Jason, thanks for being with us. Uh, thanks very much. Nice to be with you guys. So uh, the talk shows are, are dark. Uh, no guest appearances on daytime shows. Uh, the stars of some major movies just cannot uh, help publicize these films. And publicizing a film, as you know, is kind of half the battle. What do the movie studios do? That's correct. They really are in a tough spot in connection with marketing their uh, releases. And, you know, this is very serious uh, across the board of entertainment. The double strike as I think you've already reported, really hasn't happened since 1960. And the actors, as well as the writers, seem very, very strong in support of their negotiators. And so you look to management, and what's really missing on the management side is there's no industry elder. Back in the day, Lou Wasserman, has this storied career as agent, then Universal, and it's really amazing uh, movie management career and talent management career. He had been respected by both sides, and he would step in and they would eventually resolve. There is no one, uh, there's no one like that today, and, and it's sorely needed. You need one executive to break the stalemate and let cooler heads prevail. What happens if one of these movies set to come out becomes a huge, I mean, big hit, even without actors going out to promote it? Will that change the promotion model going uh, downstream? You know, I think if that were to happen, it would certainly help the distributor of that movie. But the actors are eager to promote their work. It's uh, not only for the current work that's coming out in the box office, but also future work and past work to keep their uh, their fame and their notoriety in front of the public. But let, let me ask a sort of uh, another way of asking Rob's question. Um, couldn't this backfire and be helpful to the studios because if the blockbusters still sell and people still flock to the box offices without all the promotion, then going forward, they could perhaps really cut back a lot of their promotional costs, which is part, as you know, it's built into the production cost. If you can cut that and have confidence and have confidence that people will still go to see your films, it could work to the studio's advantage, couldn't it? Well, it could. You know, marketing is uh, the marketing budget is separate from the production budget. But what you're driving at is a kind of, uh, would you say, a cynical, uh, uh, under the radar kind of impression that some journalists have already written about that uh, all of this 
in the near term benefits the production companies and studios because they save money. And they are in general under pressure from Wall Street in order to save money because of all the enormous um, payments to streaming and all the costs of streaming, billions and billions of dollars. And now there's a cutback and a shift in the thinking that seems to be guided by Wall Street for better or worse, and it may be worse, that we need to focus on profitability instead of subscriber numbers. So is that really a cynical view or is it a view of reality? Well, you know, um, it's a form of reality, yes. It's uh, the the idea of <clears throat> shifting the focus, you mean, to... Uh, well, that this whole thing is to some degree, you know, we're all being manipulated to some degree, mm-hmm. including, uh, uh, you know, the press and, and the actors union, and that this might be sort of some master plan of all the studios to really cut costs to your, the point you were making before to satisfy Wall Street. And, you know, I don't think it's deliberate. I think it is a byproduct because from all reports, the studios were blindsided by the actor strike. They're really, the assumption was <clears throat> that management would settle with the actors much like they settled with the directors. But this did not happen. And so we're in the pickle that we're in. All right. Thank you so much. That's uh, Jason Squire with the USC School of Cinematic Arts, also hosts the Movie Business Podcast on Spotify. You know, he mentioned in passing that uh, Hollywood doesn't have the figures that it had in the past, someone of, of great stature yeah. to, uh, you know, sort of bring everybody to the table. And, and, and then I was thinking last week, uh, Bob Iger, who, of course, is the CEO of Disney, I think he may have been trying to, to do that because he's the only studio head mm-hmm. that has made himself, at least in a limited uh, sense, available to the press, at least for that one interview he did with, I believe it was CNBC. But... Talk about something backfiring, because if his intent was to kind of bring everybody to the table, it was as if he went into a now empty movie theater and shouted fire. Yeah, that's that's a good analogy. I like that. Right now, though, the New York Times reported that if elected next year, former President Trump and his backers, they're looking to strengthen the power of the White House and limit the independence of federal agencies. Paul Dans is director of the 2025 Presidential Transition Project at the Heritage Foundation, and he served in the Trump administration as chief of staff at the U.S. Office of Personnel Management. Dan, thanks for, Paul, rather, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Charles. So why would we want any president, Donald Trump or anyone else, to have more power if that is, in fact, what the idea is? Well, we want what's constitutionally ordained, and that's actually what the founders set up when we put in place three coordinate branches of government. Article 2, and I should say our whole project is really for the next conservative president. But you see even uh, Joe Biden flexing his own executive powers from from the get-go. But the the reality is that ours is a is a complex system that relies on the president having all the executive powers vested within him. Everything devolves from that. And with that understanding, this entire apparatus we now call the administrative state, which came into being over the last 100 years, is at base unconstitutional. 
Doesn't that create a huge problem, though, when it comes to, let's say, the Department of Justice, which has a unique role in the executive branch? It is part of that uh, branch, but it also, in some ways, does have to stand uh, separate because sometimes it is called on to investigate something else in the executive branch. I'm thinking back to uh, the days of Richard Nixon when uh, he uh, came into office. He replaced a lot of people at the Department of Justice with not people who were experts in their field or knew what they were doing or had experience. He replaced them with some of his campaign people. And uh, I, I do get the feeling from Donald Trump's own personal history that is something he'd very much like to do and would very much like to have a Department of Justice that would answer only to him and therefore any investigation into him or anything he wants simply would not happen isn't that a huge problem and and take donald trump out of it if uh, if a democratic president wanted to do that that would that would signal alarm bells wouldn't it well a democratic president already has done that they've done it twice now uh, president obama referred to attorney general holder as his wingman and uh, now you see uh, Attorney General Garland essentially doing the bidding, bidding of the Biden campaign. So it's fully, you know, politicized. But the question is, shouldn't it be politicized in a way? And and the answer to that is yes. The president is the chief legal officer of the United States as well. So to say that he can't um, or she can't control the apparatus of the of the Justice Department, which is you know the same as meeting out justice across the United States. Certainly, the people have their ability to control that through the ballot box. And there's other constitutional limitations on the exercise of that power. Namely, Congress has its impeachment powers, and the courts also have their judicial review. So, um, you know, you always hear about an independent DOJ, but that's only when Republicans or conservatives are in place. I, I, would, I would challenge that assessment yeah, because sure. we definitely saw uh, with Bill Barr, uh, Bill Barr very willing to uh, run interference for Donald Trump. Well, you, you know, interference for who is, uh, you might want to question. Because you seem to be saying, and and, and yeah. maybe I've got it completely wrong, that uh, this is something that uh, Republican conservative presidents should have, but uh, if Democrats do it, it's bad and evil, and, and it's not good. Well, uh, you know, I think that accountability and transparency is the key here. Um, with, with Attorney General Barr, there are some fundamental questions. The laptop, you know, people have shown statistically had the laptop been examined and investigated appropriately, the, the electoral outcome in 2020 would have been entirely different. You know, I think the, the question is, why why not have a responsive DOJ to the president? And if, if that's the case, um, you know, President Trump uh, might have had a different outcome, but the, as constitutionalists, we have to look at that the way this entire system was ordained and and kind of get it back to its original fundamentals. So, that but, but, let me, but, Paul, let me, but Paul, let me ask you this though, because you said early on that uh, Biden has already done a lot of this uh, in terms of of flexing his executive. Muscles, and I agree, uh, and he certainly has. But are then you are you then saying that even if you don't agree with exactly what he did, are you okay with the fact that he exercised those muscles? Well, you're talking to someone who was uh, appointed as the head of an independent agency himself, who was removed from office by President Biden three weeks into right. into his term. I was uh, appointed by President Trump to a six year term as 
uh, chairman of the National Capital Planning Commission. Right. And you might say, well, what is that group? Well, that group actually is in charge of whether you put a fence up around the Capitol or you rename a, a city block Black Lives Matter. That's what that commission would do in, the t- in addition to overseeing the entire federal footprint. So uh, in the history of that department, um, no no person, to my knowledge, had been removed as chairman. And um, let alone the representative from Maryland, uh, President Trump uh, actually allowed all the Obama people to stay in position through their terms and actually carry on as holdovers. So, you know, this complaint that President Trump is an authoritarian or, or destroyed Washington norms is actually pure projectionism. Look at, you know, yeah, but that wasn't the but, but Paul, but, but that's way yeah. off the question. The the, the question uh, and and what you're bringing up is a whole different topic and a good one, but a different topic. The, the actual question to you though is, uh, and I get that you were removed from your post by by uh, Biden. But based on on what you're saying about returning to uh, the constitutional order as uh, ordained by the founding fathers, would do you agree, though, that whether you liked it or not, and obviously you didn't like it, that Joe Biden as president had the authority to do what he did and should have that authority? Yes. Well, you didn't see me challenge the action in court, did you? nor, you know, hundreds of others. So, you know, I think it is turnabout is fair play. You know, the reality is we can have some histrionics that, you know, President Trump or, you know, our, to be fair, our Project 2025 is really to support the next conservative president. So don't want to get ahead of that, but we are really here to uh, help the next person who says, so help me God, essentially take down the deep state to deconstruct this administrative state. Mm -hmm. But sure, you know, if President Biden were um, exercising uh, executive power and it's in its rightful authority, then we're not going to knock that. Oh, but, actually, but wait a minute. But isn't isn't that then the key phrase, rightful authority? Because wouldn't there be a considerable division of opinion, uh, even under the plan that you're articulating, uh, to invest the chief executive with with more executive power, in effect, wouldn't you always have people saying, well, yeah, but he or she still can't do it because it's not, you know, uh, it, it's just not the the right thing to do or some other formulation of that? Well, I, I think the, you know, the Constitution is clear under Article 2 that all the powers are vested in the president. The You know, some of the difficulty becomes, well, what is an executive power? You know, certainly a lot of ink's been spilled with that over the years, but the ebb away from the president towards a fourth branch of kind of unelected government through so-called independent agencies is built up over time. Um, you know, when when President Trump or whoever is the next conservative president takes the realm, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of pushback from, it depends on who controls Congress at that time and certainly the courts, but you're going to see, uh, especially in the current Thomas court, a lot more marching back. And, and I think, rerouting to the original conception. I I know we're running uh, over a bit, but I am curious about one thing, because you've mentioned a number of times uh, next conservative president, and you've kind of highlighted the word in in the way you said it, conservative. Do you then not include Donald Trump in that category? Oh, absolutely. You do? Okay. I I, I just want to... I'm saying is, uh, you know, if we want to invite Joe Biden into this fold, he can. All our stuff, by the way, is open to the public, project2025.org. The entirety of our 
mission here is to bring new blood to Washington. So if your listeners want to come fight with us and join join the administration, make a change, go to project2025.org and sign up. Or we have our policy book, which marches everyone through that, 900 pages, agency by agency. We have our online training academy and also our presidential database, which is a conservative LinkedIn. But yes, Donald Trump is absolutely a conservative president. And we, it would be our honor to help him or whoever is the standard bearer in 2024 to um, take the reins of government. All right. Uh, Paul Dan's director of the 2025 presidential transition project. And uh, Charles, you know, it's, we, we would point out talking about uh, firing people who are appointed to positions for long terms. Mm. I think James Comey would definitely uh, have something to say about being appointed to a 10-year term and then being very unceremoniously fired by then-President Trump. Right now, though, there is another new drug that might help slow down the progress of Alzheimer's disease. This comes as a new study finds L.A. County has the second highest rate of Alzheimer's in California. Susan Hallen is a program director of the Alzheimer's Association California Southland chapter. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So tell us about this new drug and why is this getting so much attention? Well, this is a really exciting momentum, and it's just a new era of treatment for li- for individuals living with Alzheimer's dementia. This is the third treatment that is in this anti-amyloid class of treatments. And the research that was released really showed that this drug significantly slowed cognitive and functional decline in people with early symptomatic Alzheimer's dementia. But define significantly. So about... So individuals who were earlier in the disease process clearly benefited more. Um, They actually had about a 60% slowing of decline compared to the placebo. And nearly half of the study participants who received this treatment, denamimab, had no clinical progression at one year. And how soon would this be available for the general people to get it? And and is it going to be something affordable and easily gotten? So two very uh, great questions. Um, Eli Lilly is the pharmaceutical company, and they will be submitting for traditional FDA approval. Um, Everyone was waiting for the release of this phase three clinical trial before the submission was made. Um, Right now, the other two treatments in this classification of anti-amyloid drugs um, are FDA approved, and they are covered with restrictions under what CMS, which is Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And that's the agency that kind of regulates what Medicare and Medicaid cover in terms of treatments. Um, so it's not in the doctor's office yet, but hopefully we're looking for favorable results in maybe by the end of this calendar year. You know, we also mentioned at the top that uh, another study finds that L.A. County has the second highest rate of Alzheimer's disease in California. Now, is that simply because we have more people or is there some other reason? Probably a combination of very specific demographic characteristics and factors. Um, Some of those might be age. So age is well-established as a primary risk factor for Alzheimer's dementia. Um, Additionally, Individuals who are Black Americans are two times as likely to develop Alzheimer's dementia as white counterparts, and Latino community is one and a half times more likely to develop 
Alzheimer's dementia than the general public as well. So there are probably a variety of factors that influence that higher prevalence rate that we're seeing. All right, Susan Howland, thank you so much. Uh, Program Director for the Alzheimer's Association, California Southland Chapter. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. A lot of astronomers have long believed that the universe is not terribly old, at least by universe standards, nearly 14 billion years in age. Well, it doesn't look a day over 14 know, looking billion. good, looking good. But thanks to the new James Webb Telescope, a new study finds the universe could be a lot older. With us to discuss is Rajendra Gupta, a theoretical physicist at the University of Ottawa, and he is the author of the study. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. So how much older, it sounds like the setup for a joke, how much older (laughs) is the universe than 14 billion years? It is additional 13 billion years old. So it's a total of about 27 billion years old. So why, what explains this huge uh, difference in our previous understanding and the understanding we're gaining now? What the difference is that we normally allocate the expansion rate of the universe to determine the age of the universe. That means at the rate it is expanding, we extrapolate it and find out when did it start to expand and what is the expansion today. And that's the way we calculate. But expansion determined normally is by measuring the so-called redshift of the light. What is the redshift of the light is just like the an ambulance approaching you has a higher pitch than when it is receding, when their siren is uh, going on. Then we same kind of effect happens in the light. So light is shifted red means lower frequency, lower pitch, you might say, if it is if the source is receding from us, then if it is approaching. So they find that the source is receding, derived it from the light. But what are the other causes of which could um, create the redshift? They were not, they were proposed, but they were found to be inconsistent right. with the observe, observations. So, other than the fact that the universe clearly is in need of a huge dose of Botox, because uh, it's so much older than 14 billion, what is the significance to all of us? What is the significance to you as a physicist that it is not 14 billion years of age, but, you know, what did you say, 26 or 27 billion years? What does that actually mean to you? What it means to me that I have to see how the galaxies were made, how long it time takes to make stars and galaxies. And can they all be made within the time frame we have? The James Webb Space Telescope, which was launched in late 2021 and started giving data last year, about one year ago, we immediately found some of the galaxies which were at cosmic dawn, very early in the universe, they were as evolved as they are today, as the galaxies we live in. So how can the galaxies at that time, almost 13 billion or more years ago, would be as evolved as the galaxies which are 10 to 12 
20, uh, 13 billion year old. So this is the thing that puzzled the uh, astronomers. It is called in, this is called um, incompatible early galaxy problem mm. or, or impossible early galaxy problem to be more precise. Right. All right. Thank you so much uh, to uh, Rajendra Gupta, theoretical physicist at the University of Ottawa. You know, it is uh, quite fascinating because uh, for the layperson, if you're looking out at a deep space, you're looking into the past because it takes light time to reach our eyes and the best data shows that the universe is currently in a state of expansion it's it's moving further and further apart we can't perceive it but that's apparently is what's happening see as when i look out at the universe i see uh my google calendar reflected <laughs> and i see what's what's ahead next week and you're always late for something <laughs> yes uh did you know that some of the economic troubles that a city has might be, might be, you know, sort of modified, you know, made less severe mm -hmm. by right. one performing artist. Just one. Just one. Wow. Just, just one. I wonder who artist. that person is. Oh, you know. Could <laughs> <laughs> pretend I don't. That's coming up. So how popular is Taylor Swift? That was a rhetorical question. Mm -hmm. She's so popular She's helping local economies. In fact, she could even help L.A.'s when she arrives for a series of concerts at SoFi Stadium next month. The Philadelphia Federal Reserve Office is that Swift's tour helped boost hotel revenue in the city. It happened in Chicago, too. So with us is uh, Seth Shackner, former Sony Music Executive, current uh, marketing director of Strat Americas, which is a media uh, consultancy company. Uh, Jason uh, Lesnovich of Choose Chicago. That's the city's tourism and marketing organization. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we'll start with... Uh, 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 you, Jason, uh, how how much does Taylor Swift help a city's economy? And is it just from uh, the concert ticket sales? But it's also like the side business is going on, right? Absolutely. I can tell you that we set all-time hotel records of the weekend that she played three nights here in Chicago. Now, you know, so over the Friday and Saturday nights, the hotel revenue was $39 million. That was an all-time record and 20.9% higher than the same period last year. So you can definitely feel the impact. And those are just some of the metrics we track when we're looking at impact of large events or conventions. And so, yeah, that weekend was our all-time record for occupancy and hotel revenue. And we know that her fans coming into town definitely played a role in that. Seth, is this something that only Taylor Swift can bestow upon a municipality, you know, fortune? Or can other performers do the same thing, work the same magic? Well, it's... um. It's a very rare niche, you know, or tier of the market, you know, so, you know, I'm going to state the obvious that there are thousands of worthy performers and artists across the spectrum, you know, small, medium, large and extra large, if you will. Um, but there is a, a certain, you know, strata of superstar artists that um, that can do this. And I think, you know, right now, for a bunch of reasons, she's probably the world's shining example of it. I mean, Bruce Springsteen, Beyonce. Metallica, Iron Maiden, you know, uh, the Rolling Stones, obviously, 
or, you know, this is the, the superstar tier that, that can do this. But I think for a bunch of reasons, um, you're seeing it in a particularly kind of spectacular way with, with her, you know, with her U.S. tour and soon to be international tour. So so not every artist can do it. But, yes, there is a there is a tier of superstars that can do it. Uh, Jason, is Taylor Swift so big that uh, she could be utilized to go into, let's say, some poorer areas of the country, some uh, some maybe some rural areas that uh, really need the help, find a place where she can put on a show, and that'll draw a lot of business, a lot of dollars to the area? It, there's that potential. You know, one thing about the major cities that she's playing is is the hotel inventory. You know, you got to have places for people to stay. Um, we were, you know, Chicago's well-equipped for these large concerts, large events. We have a great hotel inventory, um, plenty of restaurants so, to support all those people coming in. Soldier Fields holds around 63,000. So those people need places to eat, stay. And so it depends on the, the location, I would say. I'm curious, how early in the process, Jason, did you know that this was going to be a bonanza for Chicago? You know, I think when you look at, uh, you know, ticket sales, I think, you know, they were so popular and went so fast that you started to realize that people were going to buy almost any city if they could and travel to that city to experience her her shows. And so uh, we we knew right away and, you know, we have Beyonce coming in this weekend. We're, we're excited to see what um, Beyonce, you know, she's going to fill Soldier Field as well. And we're going to see some of that impact. Uh, Seth, Charles and I could use a few extra dollars. Could we uh, convince Taylor Swift to come do a show at one of our houses? <laughs> Probably not, unless you're, you know, in the billionaire category. Or something like that. <laughs> well, but, but, um, I was going to make a different suggestion, actually, because because Rob is a musician, right? You play instruments. Yeah, yeah. And, and I could hum badly, right. but I can hum. So do you think we could, like, bring some economic fortune to a city, Seth? Yeah, well, look, the, the cool thing is, I mean, yeah, you probably can on a much smaller level. I, mean, <laughs> I, knew, I knew the smaller part was coming. I mean, yeah. you know, let's be realistic here. Come on, guys. But um, Four the, people. The cool thing Four people. Yeah. It, both with Taylor's stuff as well as with lots of star, you know, artists now is there's, you know, the digital access now for, for concert tickets and whether that's, you know, getting pre-sale codes or buying or even what you're suggesting. There is something called So Far Sounds and there's there's a bunch of smaller, really cool digital music enterprises that are set up to, you know, bring Alanis Morissette to your living room or whoever whoever it might be. That is possible these days. And um, I think, you know, there's going to be huge differences in demand and all, all these spikes and even this 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 sort of economic multiplier stuff that it's really important that Jason's talking about, I think has actually been enabled by, you know, digital basically and the digital availability of, of tickets basically. So it it is possible, but um boy, you're, you know, that's going to be a massive upfront guarantee for her for sure. All right. I want to thank you both. Uh, Seth uh, Schachter, former Sony music executive, Jason Lestovich from uh, Choose Chicago. Taylor Swift could save our local economy. Charles? Taylor's not coming to our houses, and I don't no. think they're going to let us go go on tour. Think what we could bring to a city. Yeah. <laughs> a sense of disdain. <laughs> That's it for uh, KDX in depth. Maybe, maybe they would pay us to leave. <laughs> That's, there you go. That's what we do. That's we, the secret. We, yeah, we threaten yeah. to go to a city right. and then ask them to make us leave. <laughs> they pay us to not show up. That's it for KNX in depth. We'll be back tomorrow.